From the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU 91.1 FM and Brown College at the University of Virginia, this is Symposia. Welcome to Symposia, the Brown College podcast. I'm Sage Tangway, the producer. Once again, I am joined by our production assistant, Sophia Moore. Hello, it is my pleasure to introduce our listeners to today's special host, Ben Bernard. Ben, tell us a little bit about yourself and today's topic. Thanks, Sophia. I'm Benjamin Bernard, a postdoctoral research associate and lecturer. I teach in the first year undergraduate core curriculum, the Engagements Program at the University of Virginia. And I'm also a resident faculty fellow living in Brown Residential College. Today, uh, we're going to be talking together about the academic transition from high school into college. So first to start off, I'd love to actually ask you, Sophia, you know, what was the transition from high school to college uh, like for you? Uh, pretty atypical. My first year from high school to college was the COVID years. Basically the end of my senior year and my whole entire first year of college was spent online at home. When I came in on grounds as a second year, I definitely felt like a first year. And even now as a third year, I still feel like I'm feeling things out, getting into the groove of things halfway through my college career. So what is it that makes the first year in freshman college academic experience so different from what came before? For the past couple of months, Ben has been interviewing a variety of people on this topic, from high school tutors, to professors here at UVA with a vested interest in first-year studies, to students just like Sophia, who've had time to reflect on what adaptations were necessary for success at university. My teaching over the past few years has really focused on first-year education in history courses now at UVA in the engagements program. What I kept hearing from students again and again is that they were ready and willing to do what their teachers were asking of them to get the A, to get whatever grade their goal was, but the communication was breaking down somehow. That they felt that the professor wasn't clear on what the class was asking or what the assignment was asking or what they were looking for. Um, And on the other hand, I came to hear from colleagues who didn't really have a very good sense of how much their students did and did not know about what happens at a university and what takes place in a college class. With that communication breakdown, there's an opportunity. Let's start with Eric Tipler. Uh, My name's Eric Tipler. I'm a writer and a teacher and a tutor. Why did you want to speak to him for this piece? Eric is really clued into two particular areas that are really interesting to me for the the questions that we're asking on this episode. The first is that he's really attuned to what kinds of writing students do in high school. I taught high school for several years, got really sort of interested in in the the theory and practice of teaching writing. And the second is he's a total master at the college admissions process and helping high school students navigate that uh, somewhat mystifying, complicated, and high-stress 
transition. Started originally as a side gig, just working with high school students as a tutor and writing coach. Now that's most of what I do. I work one-on-one -on -one with students of all ages, from high school up to university faculty members, actually, as a writing coach. And uh, I do a lot of work helping kids through the admissions process. And I just finished the manuscript of a book uh, called Write Yourself In, which is a writing-based guide to college admissions. What I wanted to get a sense of from Eric is really what is the starting point that high school students are at when they start this process, both intellectually and in terms of their expectations for what college is going to be. I would say writing education in America is very slipshod. And it's kind of based on, you know, do you happen to have a really good writing teacher? Or are you in a school district or school system that really prioritizes writing and is thinking vertically, by which I mean, you know, from grades eight to nine to 10 to 11 to 12, about how writing is taught. You know, there are some schools and school systems that do that. Most don't. I mean, it's almost like Russian roulette, like what kind of writing skills, you know, if you're teaching freshman English, like what kind of skills they're going to have. So let's talk about college admissions and the transition to college. How do college admissions officers evaluate a high school student's academic preparation for college. So every admissions officer that I've ever talked to has pretty much said the same thing, which is that the most important factor in admissions decisions is the transcript. And it's both the strength of the transcript and the, the, uh, the strength of the, the classes. You know, has this kid taken the most rigorous classes available to them at their high school? And what grades do they get? Across the board, that's the number one, the number one thing. And that's why my advice to always, to kids, you know, the first thing is always uh, take the most rigorous classes you can handle and work hard and, you know, try to have the best grades. Now, of course, that relates to what we were saying earlier, right, about, you know, grading and education differs so much, you know, across the country, even across the street in some cases. So that's, of course, why standardized tests were developed. The SAT was started in part because Harvard decided it wanted to become a national institution and not just, you know, a blue blood, northeastern waspy elite institution. And so they were like, well, how do we figure out if this kid from Oklahoma can actually hack it at Harvard, let's give a nationally standardized test. And that's... It's a comforting myth. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. So there's a lot to say about how like everything going test optional over the pandemic has changed that. But college admissions officers, most of the ones that I've talked to, do like to see test scores for exactly that reason. One of the things that I really enjoyed about the book manuscript that you've written about how to write college admissions essays with some tips also about college admissions strategies for, for families um, is that you really walk students through very reflective exercises to help students understand what makes their eyes light up when they're thinking about something that really excites them and to identify those moments of excitement and passion and curiosity. So what does that look like concretely as an admissions consultant? In the admissions process, you know, I think it's so easy to get distracted by prestige, right? Like I'm one to talk. I went to Harvard for undergrad and Yale for grad school. You know, you went to Yale and Princeton and now you're at UVA. Like, but, but it's so easy to get distracted by prestige. And whenever, you know, whenever I'm working with a kid on college admissions, the first thing I do before we do any writing is I have them come up with a list of like, what are the top five to 10 things I'm looking for in a college? 
you know, that's kind of like our home base, right? And, you know, maybe Ivy League schools fall into that category. Great, you know, so apply to some. But, but there, you know, if, if you do that, honestly, there will be lots of other schools too. So I think that's part of it. I also think being honest is really important in the process. You know, you, you can write about almost anything and, you know, the odds are no one is going to, to check and verify these things. I mean, the reality is, you know, any admissions officer could call your high school counselor at any point in the process to verify the facts you've presented in your application. So that's a very concrete reason never to, to falsify anything. But the reality is that happens very, very infrequently. Honesty and passion come through in, in the arts, right? And writing is an art. So like that, that comes through. When I'm helping a kid craft a college essay, um, they want they want to communicate information about themselves to the reader, who will be a college admissions officer, but they also want that person to have an emotional response, right? Um, that that hey, I want to admit this kid, you know, and if if there's an admissions committee meeting, I want to stand up for this kid and advocate for this student, and you know, I want to I want to help them get in, and you can't fake that. At least I I haven't seen 17 year olds and 18 year olds who are capable of faking that and even older people who are so i think really staying true to you know sort of what do you want again this word passion which can be so overused in the admissions process but i think is really important you know what do you really care about what makes your eyes light up and i think it's just you know that's part of my job when I am advising or coaching kids, it's like to help them stay focused because there are so many, you know, it's a stormy sea and there are so many forces pulling them away from that. And then the other thing is really helping them pursue their passions. A lot of people, both parents and students, waste a lot of time and money because they think, oh, you know, if I send my kid to the Princeton summer program or the, you know, Stanford, whatever, elite summer program, that'll help them get in. And the, the reality is that it's really not about like prestige in, in terms of what you do with your time outside of the classroom in high school. It's really about passion. You know, what admissions officers are looking for is not have you gone to the most prestigious thing you can do, but it's like, have you found your passions and how have you pursued them? So whether I'm working with a kid with very limited means or with a kid with unlimited means, it's pretty much the same advice. Like within the, the spoke of what's available to you, how can you pursue your passions and figure out what you're interested in? I have a lot of conversations with families about, you know, okay, how can we find like summer programs for your student that are exciting and, and are going to look appealing to colleges, but are also going to be something that this kid is genuinely excited about and that then they can talk about in their essays too. Because you know, if you, if you go to the prestigious program and you don't enjoy it, you're not gonna write a good essay about it when it comes time to, to actually apply. For students who are gunning for the most elite schools, it's helpful to have some sort of often like research experience, whether it's uh, an internship, a formal thing like that, or even some sort of passion project. But, you know, the unfortunate reality is that the arms race that is the, the admissions process has just ratcheted things up like that. So for kids that are really, really gunning for those top schools, I often help them sort of find appropriate and fun, you know, research and scholarly based things. I usually recommend kids start writing their essays the summer before senior year. I don't recommend starting them earlier for two reasons. One is that a lot of 
maturing happens sort of after junior year. You know, as, as anybody who's been to high school in the last 10 years will remember junior year is kind of a ringer and, and it's very stressful. And, you know, most kids sort of get through it. They take a few weeks to sort of recover from it. And then they can sort of get their bearings and sort of uh, process and assimilate what's just happened. And so that's usually when a kid is in a better um, state to, to start their essays. The other reason is that a lot of students do things the summer after junior year that actually end up having a pivotal role in either what college they apply to, what kinds of colleges, or what they want to major in, what their interests are. So it's better to sort of like let that happen and then start writing. A lot of people freak out about what, what should I write my college essay about? And because <laughs> you can write about anything. I know it's really annoying. Having done this now for like over 10 years, I, I, this may sound like a Zen cone, but I sort of have come to believe that like the best thing for you to write your college essay about is the thing that you write the best essay about, if that makes sense. So you can't really predict that in advance. You have to sort of brainstorm ideas and then free write. And then you look at the free writing and the thing that like that a student really enjoyed writing and that comes out the best, that's usually what's going to turn into the best essay. And so that gives you a sense of where to go. Eric reminded me of something that I think I had forgotten, which is that um, students grow a lot through the process of applying to college oftentimes. Different students have really different experiences, but I think for a lot of them, just the process of considering different options, thinking about what they'll do when they get to college, and even the process of writing these essays is a process of self-discovery. Do you have any advice that you'd like to offer for students who are navigating the academic transition into college coursework? I think the number one thing is, is don't be afraid to ask for help. I remember going off to college and sort of feeling like I had to do this all myself and I had to figure it out and, you know, being at the school I was at, of course, in the back of my mind, I was like, did Harvard make a mistake? Do I really belong here? If I ask for help, that's a sign that I don't. But that's so not the case. When you're struggling, don't be afraid to ask for help. Look for resources. And if you're not finding the help you need, don't be afraid to, to really advocate for yourself and, and say, I don't understand this. I, I need more. This concept of asking for help was actually the theme of most of the conversations we had, most notably in the discussion you held with the postdoctoral fellows of the Engagements Program. Could you explain what that program is? So the Engagements Program is a unique new core curriculum at the University of Virginia for first-year undergraduates. My name is Jim Cohn. I'm a professor of psychology, and I'm co-director of the College Fellows Program which provides faculty to teach for the engagements curriculum at UVA. I'm also the principal of Brown College. The engagements program is our attempt to really embody what a liberal arts education is supposed to be, which is this integrative, interactive experience that enriches almost anything you would ever want to do into the first year experience at UVA so that they can take that experience with them through their college years and ideally into the rest of their lives. Rather than semester-long classes, students take a kind of sampler platter of four seven-week courses engaging aesthetics, 
ethical engagement, engaging differences, and empirical engagement. By covering these four basic areas through a kind of lighter, more interdisciplinary class, students will get a kind of introduction into the scope of the liberal arts. In that sense, UVA is joining a few other leading universities in abolishing the old core curriculum and instead cut straight to exploration and meaning making. Let's hear what some of them had to say about what they expect from their students and how that may differ from what incoming first years have experienced before. Okay, so the first thing I'm wondering is what do you expect your students to be able to do intellectually when they come in here at UVA? I mean, be curious, participate in class activities, um, and ask for help when they have a doctor. Keep it very simple, just read, show up, be mentally present, don't be on your phone, you know, kind of put the phone away. Uh, and that's it. Just kind of respond to me when I'm asking questions into the void, because I will just stare at you all awkwardly until, in silence until someone answers. Um, but that's that's like the baseline, and then hopefully build from there. This is a really quick, laughably uh, straightforward point. I expect students to Google shit. Like I expect students to not have a learned helplessness when they're reading through a text and meet. Um, a Latin phrase that they've never seen before. I don't expect them to know it on the front end. I expect them to take the 10 seconds it takes to type it into Google. Um, it's sort of same with acquiring a basic background knowledge about, um, for instance, the author of a scholarly text or whatever, whatever it is. I just want them to unlearn the helplessness that comes with reading a sentence, not knowing what it means, and giving up. The students who do the best during the class period are the students who put in sincere effort outside of the class. That includes reading, but that also includes uh, talking things over with your suite mates and having this sort of like external intellectual community that exists in the university. That's different from high school, so that's a little bit of a change for them. Um, and one of the other questions I like to ask them too is to raise their hands if they ever got an A in a class that they didn't put any effort into, and they all raise their hands. And I said, great, like, do you value that A? Like, is it worthwhile to you? It doesn't, it, my point is, it's less about the letter grade and it's more about the effort that you put in. And if you're in a place where the only thing that you value is the letter grade, you're not gonna have a very valuable education. Many of these concepts are fairly simple to understand, but it didn't take long for the postdocs to begin referencing some rather complex shifts from high school mentality. I think the important thing is to you know, not approach the material about what do you have to know and what will you be tested on, but like what do you think is worth knowing and interesting and important to know. And I think they're trained the exact opposite. And so they, they just have this horrible cognitive dissonance, I think, at times. And I forget about that because, you know, I maybe overload them with information from my perspective. It's like, you can take and leave this, really. I tell you what, you know, but they're kind of like having a meltdown. So, and eventually they get with it, I think. Uh, but I think that's a really important thing for them to approach it that way. Um, I don't know, I personally much prefer someone who doesn't know 90% of material and is trying to understand it than someone who's just regurgitating all the information. It's been my experience that students know that they're expected in college to do critical thinking and not just regurgitate answers, but their conception of what critical thinking entails is often to show how they disagree with the author of a text. And often it takes the form of saying something like, 
Well, obviously Aristotle contradicts himself here, and I always feel like, I don't know, man, Aristotle's pretty smart. He may have seen that if he obviously contradicted himself, but getting them to adopt a model of reading that is both critical and recognizes that a critical engagement often looks like being able to carefully reconstruct the parts of an argument from a sympathetic standpoint and then maybe disagree with it rather than just um, to make a case for why you personally disagree with the viewpoint of the author. As it turns out, these shifts are of great interest to those who study higher education. In order to better contextualize the experiences voiced by these professors, we spoke with Christian Steinmetz. My name is Christian Steinmetz. I'm a faculty member in the higher education program at UVA. I'm also the director of studies at Hereford Residential College. Christian is someone who studies these questions and who is an expert on these topics. So I thought, um, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could actually find find the answers to these questions, uh, not just in our own individual experiences, but hear from someone who's um, been thinking a lot about how to synthesize all these experiences together. I mostly look at college student development, so how students grow and change, develop over their four years of college, psychosocially, epistemologically, so in their cognitive development, as well as their social identity development. When we look at the development models, and we call these epistemological development models, so how do students understand the nature of knowledge? Mm -hmm. They come in typically at absolute knowing, so there's a right answer. The professor, the instructor has the answer. I have to get the answer from them. And then I'm going to demonstrate that I understand that. I see this with my students all the time in the first year. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so where do they go from there? So the next step is transitional knowing. And there's not just this knowledge out there that I need to know. I actually want to understand it and I want to understand how this applies. How can I use this knowledge? How can how does this knowledge move my understanding of myself? or the world further. A lot of times we want to teach, and even I see this, and I teach primarily grad students, I want to teach at that highest level, that fourth level, which is contextual knowing. So um, using evidence and context. Students in their first year aren't ready for that, yet sometimes we want to push them there, and they, they need, to go through these steps to understand that transitional knowing and that independent knowing where things are uncertain and they're trying to figure things out to get to contextual knowledge. What does evidence and context mean exactly? Because I can I can hear, mm-hmm. you know, the college the I'm sorry, the high school senior or the college first year student who says, Well, I know how to, how to use evidence. I know how to interpret context or apply context to an interpretation of a a text. Sure. It's a little more complicated, right? Because they don't know what they don't know. I mean, when we're talking about context, we're really talking about this bigger, broader picture than maybe they're used to. And they don't yet have all the information. And I think that is difficult for those of us that have already gone through those steps to look back and see ourselves. But understanding that students just see the world in in black and white in a lot of ways, and then they start seeing it 
in gray when things are introduced to them, but there's still a sense of there's right and there's wrong. There's levels of right and levels of wrong. Then, oh, you have an opinion? Well, your opinion is great and this is my opinion, so both opinions are okay. And then you finally being able to use evidence to come to a conclusion to say, I understand your point and here's why I disagree with you and here's the evidence, the clear evidence that I can use to back up my point. And I think students are good at doing some of that, but it really takes a while to get there in a very nuanced way. How do we square that with grades, right? And the <laughs> pressure that, that yeah. students are under. Yeah, that's a good question. One of, one of the issues, I mean, with, with grading in particular, uh, it is something that I have struggled with a lot um, over the course of my time in higher education. Because on the one hand, um, and, and there's two very, very different uh, sort of incentive structures here for uh, myself as a uh, professor. On the one hand, I my function here um, at the university is gatekeeping to a certain degree, right? Because by getting a student A or B or C, I am uh, part of a system that is is in essence determining the choices they have in the future. I mean, if I give a student a C uh, in this two-credit class, it probably isn't going to be the decisive factor that like in five years' time keeps them out of law school, but it could be. Um, and that's not a particular position that I am comfortable with. I think with grading, it's sometimes helpful to think of it as an element of communication, but one that we should acknowledge is very narrow, impoverished, and sometimes broken. Like, you know, a student writes two pages of reflection to communicate with me, and then the communication they get back is a grade, and then the next layer of it is some comments, written comments. And it could go on, you know, they could come talk to me in office hours, and I hope that they would. But I think it, it doesn't really address the issue entirely when it's difficult, but it's helpful to say, like, this is a way of me trying to communicate with you to actually evaluate the words so that we can all learning as best as we can um, so that it's not sort of the, the ultimate thing it's just an intermediary the grade is an intermediary in the communication it's a helpful paradigm but it, I don't, it doesn't always offer um, a lot of com comfort <laughs> there's a movement out there for ungrading or different different types of grading um, which I know some students would gasp and not take that very well but it's really about a deeper understanding of how students are making meaning of the material right as opposed to just saying a plus for you you got everything right um so maybe you got everything right but did you really think about it right and did you have to think about it and if you didn't have to think about it then let me push you further to that next step. I mean, I have students come to me and they'll ask me a question. They'll say, should I do this? Or should, should, I, should I answer the question this way? Or should I answer the question that way? And I'll say, yes. And that is a source of frustration for them. But the truth is they could answer the question either way. I want them to be able to tell me their reasoning behind why they chose one way as opposed to doing it the other way. 
I really don't care how <laughs> what what the answer is. I care how they get there and how they reason through. That's a lot more complicated way of thinking. I think that office hours are one of the biggest distinctions between high school and college, and students rarely know what they are and what they're for. I think of them as a combination of um, deeper engagement with the text that we're discussing and also a sort of uh, practice of um, personalizing the teaching relationship. It's a way to develop a more thorough knowledge of who my students are, to learn about their interests. It helps me inform my classes, and I hope it helps my students more deeply understand the material. And if you're also feeling struggling, there is nothing that is more important to do than to go to office hours and connect with the professor. Like that is, I think, by far the most important thing. I want to, I want to, I think, to say that students should be okay with struggling, I do believe in that in one sense. But in another sense, you know, that student could be losing their financial aid or they could be in a position of precarity that, like, you know, just having them accept, like, you know, getting a bad grade. You know, grades are, you know, it's not just them being, you know, anxious or, like, nitpicky about grades. There are some really, like, major things that are behind it. I want students to know, I mean, the most important thing is they can come to me anytime about anything. If, like, they show up, like, in November and haven't done anything by that point, I will do everything I can to make sure they get through. You know, um, students can get into this shame spiral and then they just disappear. You try to reach out. At a certain point, you don't try to reach out anymore because you're not trying to harass them. But, you know, I think they should know, especially with academics, a lot of us have had our own issues, I think, in life. And so we actually have a lot of empathy if you have your own, too. Uh, so I want that to be known almost more than anything. Yeah. Some students don't understand what office hours are for, um, especially first-generation students. They may think, you know, this isn't for me, or I don't have a problem, so I don't need to come see the professor. But I would encourage any, and I encourage all my students to come see me, whether they have a question about the material or they just want to talk further or they want to ask me a question about the program that they're in, whatever it is. I mean, I'm going to be there for two hours. Please come see me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's, um, and so even making appointments for students. And I know some faculty members do that, require students to come see them during office hours. If we put aside these deeper questions of knowledge and education conventions, are there other factors that make college harder? Is a college workload actually harder than in high school? Um, how do you help students who are maybe struggling with that? What are the reasons that they might be struggling? There's a higher volume of ungraded work in the sense that the readings are longer, more complicated, and more important than they were previously. And there's a smaller volume of low stakes grades to prop up your grades. So I think a lot of students come in and they are surprised or concerned that, say, a third of their grade in the class could ride on a high quality, high effort final presentation, right? that's a little different, and they sometimes get nervous about that. There's more unstructured time, too, which can blindside students in a number of different ways. I've had students tell me, when I was in high school, I was in class all day. Man, I was so busy, and now I only have class like twice a day. I've got all this free time. I'm going to you know, get a job, or um, you know, even if it's not necessary, I'm gonna like sign up for seven different things, because I've got all this free time, and then uh, six weeks later, they have no time left. <laughs> um, so I think that is that sort of time management 
um, challenge can um, come to bear on academic performance. This is a huge challenge too. I mean, there's so many of them, and especially uh, coming in the wake of the pandemic, so many of them are like, this is the first chance they've had to like try on a new social identity of some sort, or to perhaps be the social identity that they have been all along. There's a lot of chances for them to start trying out being different people, hanging around different groups of people, they're figuring out where they fit in, and it can be easy for them, I think, to just figure out, well, at least I'll just go to my classes and at least that's sort of like a regular drumbeat and I'm going to do that, and they're not seeing how the social interactions like dovetails with the, the social experimentation that they might be doing or are you know, seeing around them a lot of times. We do know that in those years 18 to 22, 24, it's a major time for development of individuals, whether they're in college or not, but college really can facilitate some of that development. Academically, that is probably the area that they develop the least hmm. in their first year because there's so much going on. So we like to think about the holistic development of students and that transition for a lot of students, especially if they're moving away from home, they're on their own, most many students for the first time. And I should be clear, we're talking about traditional aged 18, 19 year old students. And we also want to think about students at specific types of institutions, right? So it's going to look very different for students who are going to community college commuting or even students going to four-year colleges commuting as opposed to students going to four-year college away from home for the first time. So there's a lot of variables in there, but mm -hmm. since we're here at UVA, I'll talk about students that are most typical at UVA. So generally we see students really thinking about how they fit in, who who I'm going to hang out with, who's going to be, who are my peers, who are my people. And that's almost the first and foremost thing on their minds. Um, when we think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that's really that second tier past the physical and personal needs that once they've started to establish that, which we hope happens within the first few weeks of college, um, certainly there are programs designed around that in the residence halls particularly, and we see that happen to a great extent, especially in residential colleges, then they're able to start to think about other things, classes, other ways of getting involved, and things like that. It sounds like the social and individual transition mm -hmm. um, presents unique challenges mm -hmm. that are going to be different for each student. But you can't sort of start taking classes in the second semester or the right. second quarter, right? So right. How, how do students generally navigate that? Yeah. I mean, they're coming to college to take classes, right? To further their educational and ac academic career goals. For many students, they see it as a next step and almost a continuation from high school. So that transition is particularly rough. Finally, we wanted to hear from the people perhaps most well positioned to discuss the academic transition between high school and college, the students themselves. Here are some residents of Brown College who generously shared their experience with us. 
I'm Sevla, and I am a second year at UVA. I am intending to apply to the neuroscience major, which I'll be doing in my second semester. I feel like they're both more challenging, but also kind of, I feel more security in that I feel like it's a lot easier to approach professors and kind of be honest about like where you're at and like ask questions. In high, like in high school, I feel like um, when I would talk to a teacher, there was kind of this very strong boundary between like you are the student, you are this is this is the teacher, you do your work and then you leave, and that was kind of it, <laughs> right? Or this is kind of like how that's how I navigated high school. But I feel like especially in college, there's more of an expectation to kind of be more um, engaged in the process. Both like it was like going to office hours or like TAs, because you know like if you're in a class with like 500 kids, you're not. You're not going to talk to your professor that much, but <laughs> there's usually like someone there that you would like work things out with. So it's like higher workload, but also like more independence, which is described when you first go into college, but it feels more real while you're there. I was already um, kind of hypervigilant going in, <laughs> if that makes sense. And then I feel like most of my first year was learning to kind of actually unclench a bit. Um, Could you describe that unclenching? I guess just kind of mm, being aware that it's okay to ask for help, but that doesn't make you an idiot. And also like the fact that you're doing work in different ways from like your peers um, is also fine. Like you just kind of have to do what works best for you, Excellent. which I'm, I'm still learning that though, oh, yeah. but yeah. Hello, my name is Konstantin Shelkanov. I am a second year studying foreign affairs and economics in the College of Arts and Sciences here at UVA. I think that in high school, I definitely tried to push myself as much as possible, and I sort of had that mindset going into um, UVA as well. Um, I think I was most challenged in my ordinary differential equations class, my math class. I don't think I've ever experienced math at such a difficulty level where I had trouble understanding concepts after it was like explained multiple times over. I took um, all of Calc and also linear algebra back in um, high school through a dual enrollment program, and I didn't encounter nearly as many hurdles. What would you tell the students who are taking that class next year? Oh, what would I tell them? Buckle up <laughs> and try to enjoy the ride because it will be a difficult one. At least it was for me. Um, I think I was very privileged to come into UVA with so many credits to um, sort of alleviate the stresses of um, the general requirements. Mm -hmm. So I was able to specialize a lot more quickly. I'm dying to know, did you feel like the um, courses you took in high school for college credit were the same difficulty level and the same type of content and ways of thinking as the college courses you took mm -hmm. when you got here? That's a good question. I um, took both AP classes and dual enrollment courses through another university here in the United States, um, George Mason University to be exact. Um, my experience with AP courses were that they were not nearly as difficult, in my opinion, as the courses here at UVA, mm -hmm. just based on the expectations of the teachers back at high school. With that said, from the dual enrollment side of things at the university level, where I did have actual professors, um, they demanded an equal amount of sort of labor and grit and effort. My name's Devin C. Uh, I'm a fourth year in the College of Arts and Sciences and my physics major and data science minor. Uh, when I came to college, I was definitely, definitely thrown off as well. And then the pandemic hit my second semester and that kind of like sucked back adjusting to college because I just didn't really get, you know, adjusted to college lifestyle considering, you know, we basically like lost a year of college. I also had like a lot of time in my schedule, even though I was taking like about five or six classes. I felt like I had significantly way more free time, free time than I had in uh, high school, you know, 
to compare the high school, you know, 6.30 a.m., you know, all the way to 3.30 uh, p.m., you know, no breaks whatsoever except for lunch, you know, I feel like that required me to budget my time more in college and it required me to budget my time more, uh, you know, efficiently. Another thing I also, like, thing that shocked me was, like, how relaxing professors are. I don't know if, like, this is something that applies to like, the other, like, schools and other departments, but a lot of the physics professors, like, seem, like, a lot more chill than you would expect, considering it's a physics professor. But, you know, I'm on, like, a first-name basis with, like, several different professors, you know, and I just sometimes even go to office hours just to talk to them and just get to know them and converse with them. You know, it's something I really just didn't feel like could really happen in most high schools. Yeah, uh, one thing the college taught me is that, you know, the power of a calendar and how, like, it can help, how much it can help you in, like, planning your schedule and keeping you, you know, up to date. I am Ryan Brady. I am a second year. I am double majoring in econ and gov and minoring in astronomy. I wasn't necessarily like struggling last year, but I was caught off guard in a lot of different ways. I think the biggest thing for me was just the difference in schedules between like having high school, everything laid out for you, and then in college when you do have a schedule, but first like you make it for yourself and also nobody's holding you to it, um, that I've slept through a lot of 9 a.m.s. I remember in high school, I would, um, I would have like every class every day except for maybe one day I'd have a drop day and now you can really manage your time a lot better between classes because maybe you'll have them twice maybe three times a week and one thing I found myself doing a lot which I don't know if it's good or bad but <laughs> it's something is like really focusing on one class when I have to and kind of letting the other ones fall back and then like having that cycle of like catching up and falling back um, depending on what class is most important but like that's something that you couldn't really do in high school because you would have like assignments that were due really regularly like maybe every single day um, and you couldn't necessarily like manage your time between classes that way um, so there's just like a lot more flexibility that I found being in college. Personally I think the best part of college is being able to balance the two things um, like social and academic um, aspects of your life. I personally feel that if I didn't have like a, a group of friends that I have or didn't have um, sort of like our weekend activities like going to the farmer's market or whatever we'll do, I would be really burnt out academically. Um, and similarly, I don't think I could spend all my time just hanging out with my friends. A lot of times we hang out in the library and we're like, yeah, we'll do work and then we get no work done. And like sometimes my... I'll have to be like, okay, I'm actually, I'm actually gonna do work now. <laughs> um, but I just think the balance is really important. And I mean, I know everyone says that, but it's just like, I guess you kind of have to find it for yourself. Hi, um, I'm Susanna Kharadzan. I'm also a second year, and I'm double majoring in foreign affairs and religious studies. Um, so I had a bit of a different um, high school experience because I went to high school in Armenia and then I moved here as a first year um, by myself. So besides the fact that everything was in a completely different language, um, I faced a lot of difficulties with like just curriculums in general because here professors and different lecturers might be like, oh, you, like, you already know this and building on this knowledge. And I realized that in a, lot of, in a lot of cases I didn't have that prior knowledge just because the curriculums were so different. So kind of getting used to doing some extra work when needed. This is not true for all courses, but it's true for my favorite courses in politics and like religious studies for example is that they really help you get into the topic that you're passionate about and 
look at it through a eight pers- look at it through different perspectives and then also be able to apply it to like real life issues and I think that's something that maybe not all high school courses give you the ability to do so so rather than just like learning the material it's all about application and just like understanding the material beyond what it just like says but also what it means and being able to apply it in different circumstances. Something that has been mentioned throughout these conversations is the fact that first-year students are coming from very different places, whether it be academically, economically, or geographically. You know, some students have a lot more information coming in about what to expect than others do. And so I think that's that's also worth keeping in mind for the faculty, at least, that not all of their students are going to have had the experiences that, for instance, Eric's tutoring students have. Yeah, it seems that first-generation students and international students face additional hurdles during the transition on top of the expected growing pains. Once again, here's Jim Cohn. First thing I think of when I think first-generation college student is a burning desire to achieve something that often feels unachievable, but is not unachievable, is amply and fully and completely achievable. I'm a first-generation college student. The main challenge that is faced by first-generation college students, at least just speaking from experience, is that they often don't know what they don't know. This is what happens when a person enters into a, a foreign culture. And that's what university, especially something like UVA, can be for a first-generation college student. There's all kinds of cultural knowledge that they often do not possess. Class, race, transfer background, these have huge effects on where you feel safe just existing. You know, what is the lawn to you? What is the rotunda to you? Whether you feel safe to engage with faculty, what is the meaning of going to office hours? What is the sociocultural meaning of even doing it? These are all things that come up. The students also had several recommendations for those looking forward to matriculating into the university, or even those who are still adapting to their new environment. First years should at least try to take one seminar class. I know you have like genetic requirements, so you'll probably take a seminar class anyways, but like I know for me, like technically I could have not taken a seminar class my first year, but I did, and I think that really saved me. <laughs> Just like having a space to discuss, I think. Um, a topic? I, I don't know. I personally, I enjoy class discussions. I say this as a STEM kid, so I don't really get the opportunity to do class discussions a lot. But when I do, I love it. And I do, um, I think I needed that kind of space to be able to like openly express my thoughts. I think maybe just a lot of professors genuinely value effort being put into their class. And I think that's, a, that's especially true with like smaller classes that I've taken. I also think growth. I think a lot of professors value growth a lot more over to come in with a certain skill set and you maybe don't perform nearly as well on one exam or one essay or so on as somebody else but seeing you put in the effort like you mm-hmm. said being engaged being engaged with the feedback attending office hours sort of putting in the grit and the um, work to sort of grow and produce the best result that you can produce over time um set a schedule and then make it a realistic schedule like know your limits, <laughs> but also know what you need to do and like do those things. Like that sounds that sounds big. I mean like it might seem like 
a good idea to not do a certain amount of work and then like maybe cram within like three days and then you'll be fine but if you know you can't do that don't do it (laughs) well i guess really you learned through experience because like (laughs) on my side but also because i think also there's the idea of like asking you constantly ask other people like what's the best way to do work what's the best way to do this work how do i talk to this class how do i get an a like how do i you know survive i don't know (laughs) um i think my last piece of advice for first years or for else I don't know I think it would apply to anybody um is to try to go downtown every once in a while um it's really easy with the public transit system and I found myself that it it kind of realigns me um in a larger space because you get really used to living in an academic institution um where you're really only interacting with students and professors and then you can go downtown and see that there's a lot more to life um and even if that means like for me sometimes that's just going with a friend to a coffee shop downtown and doing work there <laughs> instead of in the library um but i really feel that like just yeah being able to like orient yourself yeah. like being more grounded yeah uh one piece of advice i'd have is uh go to office hours you know it'll help you understand material a lot more and even if you understand material you know professors like it when you come to the office hours and talk to them mm-hmm. Yeah, honestly, I feel like a lot of professors just want an excuse to talk about their material. (laughs) So, like, they'll be glad to just see you sometime. So, Ben, were you surprised by anything the students had to say? I wasn't expecting so much fantastic advice about, like, organizing and sort of being organized and um, keeping track of the assignments and time management and things like that. I... um, you know, I, I think um, it's easy for the faculty to miss how much of a concern that is for students. The point I was most interested in was their emphasis on communication with professors and how so many students that we spoke to for this episode, you know, really explained that it was something that they had to learn how to do, that they had to learn what kinds of feedback they were getting from faculty and how to interpret it and then how to build kind of authentic intellectual connections with um, the professors of their courses, the faculty in their majors, um, and how different that was from their experiences in high school. And so that that really stuck with me because it resonated so much with what the faculty were also saying. Um, And everyone talked about how important office hours were and going to office hours. And, you know, I, I think what was interesting about that conversation is that You know, we might imagine that a one-on-one system of education, as if you're a kind of Renaissance prince and you have a private tutor who teaches you everything, like, sure, maybe that's more efficient, but it's not practical at a university with thousands of people. And so I heard this kind of refrain about office hours as a kind of proxy for that kind of personal attention and care that isn't feasible at scale. So for the students who do find the opportunities to build those connections and um, and to take advantage of those opportunities, they're really getting their, a good bang for their buck, right? Compared to the students who aren't taking advantage of those opportunities. You started this project with the feeling that there was a communication gap between faculty and students, in particular first years. 
What do you think now? I think there absolutely is a communication gap. I mean, when you teach a class, you're really focused on the content of your own discipline and your own course. You're worried about preparing the students for the higher levels in your discipline. And there's so much that comes into play that you don't always sort of have the time to stop and to sort of reflect in this kind of meta way on you know, how are you going to succeed in what we're all trying to do here? How does this fit into your your life more broadly or your other courses? I also think a, a lot of faculty might be surprised to hear how, I guess, how sort of authentically engaged the students that we interviewed were. Um, maybe this is because... You know, I'm a, a faculty member on the other end of the microphone, but I was, you know, the students weren't talking about how to game the system, right? Um, and so I think that's really important for faculty to keep in mind is this kind of base presumption that everyone's trying to do their best here, right? On the other hand, I also think that the students might be surprised to hear how much the faculty worry about, like, why are we even participating in this system where we give grades like what is this good for what is the best way to set up and run a class i mean these are um, really fundamental questions that um that elicit quite a fair amount of debate among the faculty um and so i think that that just kind of variety and and self-awareness on the part of the faculty that that might be a surprise to some students so what next if I think, you know, what, what do I want listeners of this podcast to take away from it? Uh, you know, my hope is that they learn some tips and tricks along the way, but that they also become sensitized to the kind of issues at stake in the academic transition to college, a kind of sensitivity to the types of problems and questions and challenges and issues and also joys and uh, excitement. We'll leave you off with a story from Christian Steinmetz about when she decided to delve into the study of higher education and student development. One of my first jobs, I was worked in admissions, and then I transitioned into first-year experience programs and orientation. And I'll, I'll never forget this. We had, I worked at a very small college. We had this program where um, the first day of orientation, that first night, students were in small groups and they went to faculty homes um, for small group gatherings and then they would come back. And I remember, this is such a vivid memory for me, I remember waiting for students to come back to their residence hall and then greeting them when they came back. I was standing outside the residence hall and I saw the lights coming on in their rooms and you could see people organizing their rooms, getting their stuff together and um, just getting ready to be college students. And I was struck by how awesome, awesome in terms of big, great of a responsibility is it that we have to be a part of these students' lives for four years and how the work that we do and can and should do can make such an impression on them and move them forward in their lives and their careers and personally. And it it just struck me as so important that I I fell in love with it and I couldn't believe I got paid to do it. When I decided to go to grad school, 
that was it. I just I wanted to study higher education and understand more about how students change and how we can help them in that process or work with them in that process. Symposia is a production of Brown College at the University of Virginia and the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU 91.1 FM. This episode was hosted by Ben Bernard and produced by Sage Tangway. Our production assistant is Sophia Moore. Production of this episode was only possible because of the willingness of all of our guests. We'd like to thank all of them, including Christian Steinmetz from the School of Education and Human Development and Hereford Residential College. Eric Tipler, who you can find more information about on his website, www.writingasthinking.com. The Engagements Program, with a specific shout out to Matthew Aaliyah, Andrew Ferguson, Eric Fredner, Caleb Hendrickson, Justin McBrien, Jessica Neblo, Sean Reed, Ishani Saraf, Matthew Squiat, and David Walsh. We'd also like to thank Jim Cohn of the Engagements Program and Brown Residential College, and all of the residents of Brown College who shared their experiences with us. You can subscribe to Symposia wherever you get your podcasts, and if you enjoyed what you heard, share the episode. If you'd like to learn more about Brown College at the University of Virginia, visit our website, browncollege.virginia.edu, or find us on social media.